Well, when's the last time you looked at your kids' baby pictures? Last week, this week. <laughs> yep. How about those hospital caps? Still got those? Little knitted caps? <clears throat> I, I think our, our, uh, uh, our second daughter, when, when she was born, they didn't have any of the knitted caps, so they just kind of took a, a pressure cuff bandage and cut a chunk out of it and made a twist and put it over her head, and so we got that one still. Uh, uh, th- those little wristbands that didn't really stay on because <laughs> they were too, the kids are too small and they wriggle out of them. You remember <clears throat> the smells of the hospital, the feel and the sounds those first few days with a new, new human being that the nurses were going to send home with you and you had no idea what you were doing, and yet they still were just like, no, take it home. <laughs> the only thing they cared about is whether the straps on the car seat were, were uh, right. Other than that, they like, really, you're sending me home with this? Wow, that's a lot of trust. How detailed is your memory of the events around the birth of your children? In 2003, my brother and I were on our way to uh, Vancouver Island because my grandmother had passed away, and so we were going down uh, in March. Actually, March 13th was the day we left. It was a Thursday, and uh, Sarah was about, it was two weeks until our firstborn was due to arrive, but she had, a, uh, she had an appointment that day that my, my uh, sister-in-law had driven her to, and so my brother and I had left early Thursday morning because it was going to be a long drive. I'm not sure when we were going to get to the island, but um, we got to Kamloops from Edmonton, eight hours or so. We got to the Petrocan station up on the hill there before you get to the Coquihalla, and we had supper there, and I thought, well, I better phone, find out how the appointment went, so I phoned. She said, yeah, things seem to be going okay, about two centimeters dilated, whatever. And I went, okay, well, I don't know what that means. Um, (laughs) So I went back to the table with my brother and I said, well, this is kind of what's going on. I said, so what does that mean? mean, And he looked at me and he said, because they'd already had their three kids, he says, that means we came to Kamloops for supper and we're driving back to Edmonton right now. So we turned around from Kamloops, we headed back to Edmonton, we got to the junction at Highway 16 and Highway 5, and the road was closed because of freezing rain. Yay, March. So there we were about 1 o'clock in the morning because, of course, eight hours, we drove to Kamloops, we're on our way back, it's about 1 o'clock in the morning, the road's closed, there's a few trucks, semis in front of us, but they're salting and mudding and dumping stuff all over the road to get it open. I think it opened a couple hours later, and we blasted ahead of all of those trucks and made it home, went to sleep for the day, and then eh, about midnight, pop, water broke, and away we went to the hospital, and on March 15th, Cara was born. And... You remember all the details, right? You remember the details. Twice in Luke chapter 2, we come across this phrase, but Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. 
She remembered the details. Let's turn, turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 2. Throughout the two opening chapters of Luke's gospel, we are reading intimate details, treasured memories that really only a parent could tell you. I imagine if Mary closed her eyes years later, she could still recall the smell of that stall, the hay, and the animals. Could she describe the shepherds and how many of them were there, the looks on their faces, the wonder, the amazement of that moment, the little details that just stay with you no matter how old your children are. And while we're reading the words that Luke has written for us, we are most likely reading the memories of a mother. Or who else could retell these stories with such depth and detail and emotion? Listen, starting in verse 22. When the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to be presented to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves and two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Now, Lord, you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for the glory of your people Israel. And his father and mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also so that the thoughts of many, from many hearts may be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it. But supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. 
After three days, they found him in the temple sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. This is the word of the Lord. Lord, thank you for your word to us and thank you for these scenes of your childhood. Lord, how easy it is for us to think simply of the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the Righteous One, our wonderful Counselor, the one who went to the cross for us, who rose victorious and who is coming again, and how easily we forget that you were a child, that you took on flesh, And as Hebrews says, was tempted and tried in all the ways that we are, yet without sin. That you were hungry, that you got tired, that at times you even felt a little exasperated with your disciples, their lack of understanding. That you simply lived as a boy and as a teenager, as a young man, in relative obscurity in a tiny town in the middle of nowhere. Lord, help us not to put your divinity over your humanity, but help us to see you for who you are. Fully God, fully human. So that you know exactly what we go through in our lives. You know the ups and the downs, the pains, the joys, the trials. Thank you that you came to walk among us, that you feel with us wherever we're at today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, wonder, amazement, and confusion, and maybe a little bit of parental trauma along the way, just for good measure. Imagine raising Jesus I think it was more of a challenge than we might think. Imagine being the parent. Imagine knowing exactly what an angel has told you and your spouse about this child who is going to be entrusted to you. Like, I I remember, uh, especially when Cadence was born, this was our second born, and I went to the nurse's station after and said, uh, any you know, uh, cleaning up the baby after birth. And they knew it was our second, so they didn't even look up from the desk. They're like, yeah, around the corner, there's warm towels in there, bathing bin. Like, do it yourself. (laughs) That was about the extent of it. Like, like imagine God is like, the Holy Spirit's going to overshadow you. You, The the baby you're going to conceive will be the son of God. Uh, Here's a stable, have a baby. Like, just her and Joseph. Entrusted with this. Just just imagine what your mind would be going through. Here's the Messiah, God's son. 
One to save his people from their sins who would be given the throne of David to reign over the house of Jacob forever. See Luke chapter 1, 32 to 33, Matthew 1, 20 to 21 for what, how the angel identified this child to Mary and Joseph. As a parent, what would your expectations be at that moment? How would you imagine the pregnancy, delivery, and early childhood of this son? How would you even begin to process that? Now Mary's been processing this for decades by the time we read this. By the time she tells somebody, whether she's telling Luke directly or telling somebody else and Luke has a written record of her accounts, we don't know. We know that at the crucifixion, Jesus entrusts John the Apostle with the care of Mary. She was present in the early chapters of Acts with the earliest church along with her other children, Acts 1.14. They had been at the crucifixion of Jesus. They had witnessed the risen Lord. I wonder, did Jesus visit with Mary after the resurrection? Did he have some one-on-one time with her? Paul tells us that Jesus appeared to over 500 people at one time. Mary is not far away from any of the events that close out the chapters of the Gospels and the opening chapters of Acts, but we're left with questions, not evidence. Imagination, not certainty. But she was there. She was there. And so as we read these opening chapters of Luke, imagine Mary speaking to Luke. Imagine her taking out these memories that she has treasured in her heart all these years, 33 years. And one by one, she begins to take out these precious memories and share them so that others can know the certainty of the things that were fulfilled among the people so that Luke could write to Theophilus and he would be encouraged in every reader of Luke's account of Jesus' life that the life of her son was a life of truth and purpose and God's revelation. How many stories could she have told? But out of all of those that could be told from the time that Gabriel appeared to her until Jesus was 12 years old, there must have been more. But Luke chooses these stories carefully and deliberately and what he may have left out isn't as important as what he chose to include. He includes shepherds, two people at the temple, a man and a prophetess. A scary event that left Mary and Joseph shaken, both events in Jerusalem, both at the temple, both revealing something more of the identity and the mission of Jesus Christ, the Son of the Most High, their Son, a child they're raising, but barely understanding, at least not right away. I wonder if in the end Mary still had questions. I imagine one question that repeated throughout her heart was something like, why me? Why us? We have two scenes in this passage, first, the first scene is that Jesus is presented at the temple. 
verse 21 to 39. The first scene shows us a family that is faithful to the word of God. Repeatedly, we are told they were there to perform everything according to the law of the Lord over and over, according to the law of Moses, as it is written in the law of the Lord, what is said in the law of the Lord, the custom of the law. They did everything according to the law of the Lord. This is a, peop- this is a family faithful to God's word. If there's one thing that characterizes Mary and Joseph, because we don't know a lot about them, is that they were responsive to the word of God. Joseph didn't want to disgrace Mary publicly, so he plans to break off the engagement quietly. And even in looking to break off the engagement, we see the heart of Joseph. He's following the law of God, yet he, how he decides to follow it reveals something of his character. He is still tender and caring and doesn't want to cause more harm. Mary responds to the wonder and the impossibility of the announcement of Gabriel by offering herself wholly to God's purposes I am the Lord's servant. Greek word is doulos, slave. Let it be to me according to your word. According to your word. Mary and Joseph embody faithfulness and commitment to the word of the Lord, even when it doesn't make sense to them. Even when it will cost them everything that they know. There they are at the temple, 40 days after Jesus' birth, to fulfill the biblical requirements of all Jewish firstborn sons. They're there to offer sacrifices for Mary's purification after childbirth. Everything was by the book for this couple. And then the Spirit of God shows up, and what happens next is more than they expected that day in Jerusalem. They were there to fulfill the word of the Lord, but the word of the Lord had something more for them. And it came through this man, Simeon, and this prophetess, Anna. Simeon, what do we know about Simeon? Filled with the Holy Spirit, that's it. He was righteous and devout. The Holy Spirit was on him. He had a message from God that he wouldn't die before he saw the Messiah. He was led and he was responsive to the God's spirit. We don't know how old he is. We don't know his occupation. The pictures of him being old, the idea that he was a priest, all of those are conjecture. The text tells us nothing about him, but the spirit leading him and guiding him and what he says. We know nothing more about him than what he said. He was inspired to sing and to worship This child is the salvation of God, a salvation that will go beyond Israel. All the longings and hopes of Israel will be realized in the life of this child. And the Gentiles will have light and Israel will have glory and God will work in mighty ways. And he also has a specific message for Mary. Your child is going to divide the people of Israel and he's going to rip your heart in two. This isn't going to be easy. It's going to be painful. That's Simeon's message. And then Anna comes on the scene. What do we know about her? Lots. She's a prophetess in the New Testament, second only to the apostles in the list of giftings. 
We know her family history. We know she was married for seven years and then she's been widowed ever since. She's now 84 or maybe older. She has dedicated her life to prayer and worship. She speaks, she praises God, she tells others about this child, but we don't know what she said. Who she is is more important than what she says. For Luke, the story speaks of a reality to come, that when the Holy Spirit comes, the proclamation of the gospel and the good news will happen. Luke relates in the first sermon of Peter, which starts off with quoting Joel, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and daughters shall prophesy. Already in Luke 2, we see the beginnings of this reality. For Luke, this is central to the gospel. The message goes out as the Spirit speaks through his people. So the first scene, Jesus is presented at the temple as a baby. He plays no role. The faith of his parents and the Spirit's moving speak of his importance. On either side of the words of Simeon in the presence of Anna, we are told that they are waiting. They're waiting. But the waiting has now come to an end. They're waiting for the consolation of Israel. They are waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. And they see in Jesus Christ that the wait is over. Here was everything they longed for and all that the prophets foretold. And Jesus is just 40 days old. He does nothing. He says nothing. He is simply there. What is it that you are waiting for Jesus to say or do in your life or the life of your family? And what if he does nothing and says nothing but is just simply there? What if amid your longing and your waiting, he is simply and silently present with you? Will that be enough to sing and to worship and to rejoice and to deepen your faith in him? Will his silent, passive presence fill you with hope and joy? And will you stand amazed in his presence? The first scene, Jesus is presented at the temple. The second scene, Jesus is present at the temple. We fast forward 12 years. You wonder what happened in between? You'll have to wait, watch the movies in heaven. Uh, sit down with Mary and have a chat. What was it like to have toddler Jesus and three years old who knew everything and didn't do anything wrong? Boy, that'd be fun, wouldn't it? Maybe exasperating even. We skip ahead 12 years in the story. Luke doesn't mention the Magi or Herod, the flight to Egypt, none of that. For reasons known only to Luke, those details aren't important, but there's something that Luke includes no other gospel writer bothers with. Jesus as an emerging adult. Well, the bar mitzvah ceremonies don't come until later rabbinic Judaism take root, takes root. Jewish boys were considered adults at age 13. The specific training in the law of the Lord would begin in earnest in their 12th year, and Joseph would be the primary one responsible for Jesus' training 
in the Bible. Obviously, this is a family committed to living out what they believe. We've seen that already. Three festivals a year were mandatory for all Jewish men, but Passover was the main one, and officially, only the men needed to make the trip to Jerusalem, but by this time, it was often a family affair, as we see in the text. They're they're with the rest of their family and other people that they know, probably traveling in a caravan for safety, because the roads could be treacherous and travel was done in groups. In caravans, multiple families travel together. It's a time of solidarity and community unlike anything that we know. Also, due to cultural issues, often the men would travel together and the women children separately. and Then they would gather at dusk and set up camp together and, and have a meal together as a whole community. The fact that Jesus' parents missed his absence isn't really due to neglect or unawareness. They just figured he was there somewhere. But Jesus had made a decision, it seems. The text says, the boy Jesus stayed behind. Mary and Joseph had walked all day. All day. It's evening. If you're just kind of walking, normal walking speeds about three miles an hour, if you've walked for eight to 10 hours, you've covered about 20 to 25 miles, maybe a little bit more. They were settling in for the night and they discovered Jesus isn't there. The next day, here's a whole nother day, they got to walk all the way back. And then they got to take another day to find him. That's day three. Where Jesus slept, who offered him a place to stay or food to eat. Again, we got silence on those details. How What did he do? 12-year-old kid in Jerusalem. I know, I got a 12-year-old kid right now. I'm not sure, you know, three days, you know, just hanging out somewhere by himself. Yeah, I'm not sure how that would go. But we do know what he was doing during the days. He was listening. He was asking questions. He was giving answers. Amazing people with whom he was speaking. He was fully engaged in actually a very normal rabbinic practice of discussing theology and the Torah with the teachers in the temple. Rabbinic teaching was a discussion. It was questions and answers and more questions. You know, and and you just kind of kept back and forth questioning, 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 digging deeper into an issue, probing it. And here is Jesus at 12 years old, not just holding his own, but he's amazing them again. What was said and the issues they debated, no idea. The text is silent on this. And perhaps Jesus didn't tell Mary and Joseph what they were talking about. Perhaps they wouldn't have cared that much at that point either. The text is not silent on who spoke first. Son, (laughs) what have you done to us? Your father and I have been looking for you in great distress. The word there is like we were out of our heads with worry. Of course you were. It's been three days. Your 12-year-old kid, who by the way happens to be the Messiah who's supposed to save the whole world, is missing. You lost the Messiah? (laughs) Wow. No pressure, right? Mary's just like in full mama bear mode here, right? Like, what are you thinking? Your father and I have been so searching for you. The ESV puts it, searching for you in great distress. Yeah, I I imagine that. 
Now imagine being Mary and Joseph and your missing son says, why were you looking for me? I'm not sure he'd get the next sentence out. <laughs> what do you mean you, you were looking for me? Didn't you know I'd be right here? <laughs> oh, man. I think I'd be pretty wound up. How about you? Jesus, however, isn't disrespectful in this defense of his response. What he says next is probably what causes more confusion to Mary and Joseph than the fact that he just wonders why they were looking for him. At least at this point in their understanding. Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? I don't know about you, but I want to know what Joseph was thinking at that moment. Mary referred to him first. He says, your father and I have been looking for you. Jesus responds, I had to be in my father's house. Literally, the things, I had to be about the things of my father. Jesus at 12 years old is already making a clear distinction that will permeate the rest of Luke's gospel. This is a theme throughout his whole work. The family that is most important and the relationships that really matter center on God, the father, and his son, Jesus Christ. And already at 12 years old, Jesus knows the difference. It's Luke who reports Jesus telling a would-be follower who wanted to wait until his father was dead and buried that you can't wait on family. Let the dead bury their dead. You must follow me. It is only Luke who reports this harsh version that, that, that the other, other gospels soften. Anyone who comes after me and does not hate father, mother, wife, and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, cannot be my disciple. And the cannot is the strongest negative in the Greek language. It's impossible to be my disciple. There is a high cost to discipleship. Following Jesus isn't about a life of bliss and privilege and power and getting what we want. It's about laying down everything and surrendering everything to Jesus Christ. You can't hold back anything in your life and follow Jesus. Even at 12 years old, he says, I have to be about my father's business. I'm sorry that it's causing you a problem right now. This is not to say that we just need to do more and be hard-hearted towards family. Jesus isn't calling us to that. He is calling us to prioritize following him with such radical devotion that we follow him no matter what. He isn't calling for more religion or effort to prove ourselves worthy. Jesus calls us to follow him in a radical new way of relating to God that is not possible, really, apart from his spirit moving us and leading us to this impossible, incomprehensible life that calls us to take up our cross, to love our enemies, to pray for those who persecute us, and give up our power and privilege to become servants to everyone around us. That's the call of discipleship. That's the call of Jesus. If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. It's not a life of easy, get what you want, have a great life. It's a life of sacrifice. Mary and Joseph hear these words, I must be in my father's house, which means 
Mom and dad, I've recentered my life and my purpose around a different relationship. And they don't understand it in the moment. But Jesus is kind and patient, and for the next 17 to 18 years, we know nothing of Jesus' life other than these closing words in Luke chapter 2, 51 to 52. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. Mary had the next 18 years to ponder all of this. And then things would change radically again. Jesus would leave home. He would gather a group of followers. The rumors would fly. The family would doubt and not believe. His own brothers didn't believe in him. At one point, she and her children, Jesus' half-brothers, tried to get to him, to bring him back to Nazareth, fearing he had gone insane. Life was not getting easier. Jesus was just making it harder. And then in just three short years from the time Jesus is baptized by his cousin John, whom Mary also knew very closely, Mary will stand at the foot of a cross and her heart would be pierced through as she witnesses a sword piercing the side of her son, the baby over whom Simeon and Anna rejoiced and worshipped, the boy who insisted his father's house was more important than anything else. And when would any of this make sense to her? She treasured up all these things in her heart. And the Gospel of John tells us repeatedly the disciples didn't understand until after the resurrection, the ascension of of Jesus and the coming of the Spirit. And what they expected of who Jesus was didn't make any sense. But they only had to wait three years for it to make sense. Mary raised this child, the teenager, the man. She knew Jesus like no one else. 33 years of questions, of wondering, of pondering, all these things in her heart. Most of us want a faith that's easy to explain, understand, and defend. Something we can lay out in a short presentation that will connect with people and they'll see how much sense Christianity makes and how easy it is. What if Jesus doesn't work that way? What if it's about patiently waiting like Simeon and Anna who live with the presence of the Holy Spirit but were left waiting for years before they see the consolation and redemption, the salvation of the Lord? How patient are we? How long will we wait? And how much discomfort are we willing to endure so that we can experience the reality of the presence of Christ? And Mary, 30 plus years, and the angel, the angel talked to her. But all this stuff that happens in between must have been confusing. When did she come to understand? What if following Jesus is more about living with questions that don't get answered, mysteries that can't be solved? And what if he is calling us in the moments of our confusion to simply treasure up all these things and ponder them in our hearts? Let's pray. Lord, sometimes we don't know what to do. 
when you speak to us or when you show us something in your word. Help us, Lord, to live in the mystery. Help us to embrace wonder. Help us not to run to try to get all of our questions answered so that we can figure everything out about you and live with the some form of absolute certainty that everything we believe is absolutely 100%. Help us to embrace the mystery that God became human. Help us to embrace the questions that we don't have answers to. The questions that you don't answer for us. The questions of Job. When suffering comes, when your children are taken, when your health is gone, when your spouse just says, hey, curse God and die, get this over with. Lord, life has questions that we just can't answer. Things happen and we just don't know why. You haven't promised to take all of the pain away, nor have you promised to answer all our questions, but you've promised to be with us. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil because you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table in the presence of my enemies and my cup overflows and surely I'll live in the house of the Lord forever. Lord, what more could we want than to just be with you and you with us? Lord, help us to quiet our questions, to take all of these things that may be swirling around in our minds about what's going on in our lives, the things we've had to walk through, the pains we've had to endure, and treasure those things in our hearts. Lord, thank you that you lived in a family that you most likely buried a father. Maybe siblings, we don't know. Family members, community members. Nazareth is small, small town, smaller than Grand Forks, so you know everybody. You go to every funeral. And for 30 years, you just lived life with all of its stuff. So Lord, thank you that we can take the stuff of our lives and come to you. Thank you that you walk with us. Thank you that you will never leave us or forsake us. Thank you that you said, I'm going to prepare a place for you and if I'm doing that, I'm going to come back for you, so don't worry about it. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one's going to come 
except through me. And I'll be with you always to the very end of the age. So Lord, help us to rest in your presence, especially when we don't have answers to our questions or our pains. In Jesus' name, amen.